Hi, welcome to Lockdown Culture, the new podcast from Country and Townhouse with me, Ed Vasey. I am no less than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And every week while we are in lockdown, I'll be discussing my top cultural picks with my old friend and associate, Charlotte Metcalf, who is also involved with this wonderful magazine, Country and Townhouse, because she is the associate editor. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Ed, and I'm absolutely delighted to be launching this podcast with you. And we're going to be talking about your picks today, about what to look for in the week ahead. So we are recording remotely, so I apologise in advance for any technical issues. This is the first time we've done this, so it's all quite exciting. But we're going to kick off with what theatre has been doing during the crisis. So, Ed. Yes, well, obviously, I think the big theatre news of the week has been, uh, or rather the month even, uh, has been the launch of the National Theatre at Home. So what the National Theatre is doing is they are broadcasting every week uh, one of their plays, and they're making it a sort of an event because it's broadcast on a Thursday night at 7 o'clock on YouTube. So they're using a US uh, platform to broadcast, and also, obviously, by definition, because it's on YouTube, it's broadcasting to uh, the world. Uh, and they make it an event, so they launch it at 7 o'clock on a Thursday night and obviously be a different time around the world uh, but it is then up for the whole of the week for people to watch and they launched with one man two governors which was fascinating uh, which is a wonderful farce written by a contemporary playwright called Richard B which I actually did see in the National Theatre with James Corden who does indeed star in uh, this uh, casting of uh, of the play uh, and it was a wonderful event and for me it was also fascinating because I'm chairman of a company called Digital Theatre, which does this stuff day in, day out, providing uh, plays online for universities and colleges. It was fascinating to see how people interacted. I think they got about a quarter of a million viewers, the National Theatre, for, as it were, their live broadcast. But then I think they got two and a half million for the week that that play uh, was actually uh, up. And they also raised money. They raised about $80,000 during the broadcast because they had an appeal for funding as well. So it's fascinating to watch. But as you know, Charlotte, there are a number of other plays have since followed. Yes, I saw Jane Eyre, which I hadn't seen in the theatre, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I saw a bit of Treasure Island, but what I'm really looking forward to is seeing Twelfth Night, which I did see in the theatre, and I know it was on last Thursday. Um, so I'm going to be see th- seeing that. And um, tell us about the quiz. They're also doing a quiz, aren't they? Yeah, they're doing a quiz. They have, if, in fact, uh, if you're listening to this podcast when it's hot off the press, I think the quiz is tonight because I think this podcast comes out on a Monday. Uh, and it's got Helen Mirren, Helen Mirren, Lenny Henry, Leslie Manville and Ian McKent- McKellen, obviously four extremely well-known actors. You can play along from home via Facebook or YouTube and questions obviously on theatre, but also on history and sport. And I think uh, this whole thing for me is completely fascinating how the National Theatre is adapting to this, because the National Theatre has a global brand. It is able to call on, you know, very well-known actors like Helen Mirren and Lenny Henry to support it. It's got fantastic product, if I can use a terrible sort of commercial term in terms of the plays it has on file. For example, uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller Frankenstein is going to be shown in a couple of weeks. And that's, that is, no, it's Thursday. This yeah, Thursday, Thursday is going to be shown. And this is genuinely a play that I wish I had seen when it was on at the National, have always regretted missing. And again, this is part and parcel of this strange relationship 
theatre has with the screen and digital? Because obviously, if you're an actor, you want to perform in front of a live audience. That is the essence of what you're doing. But actually, for poor old uh, muggins like me who miss a play, the opportunity to see Frankenstein is fantastic. And obviously, the opportunity for anyone who can't be regularly at the National Theatre, who doesn't live in London or near London, to see these plays, as indeed the NT Live experience where they show it in cinemas has shown that to be the case. So this could be a bit of a breakthrough moment for the National Theatre in how it interacts with audiences digitally. Yes, I mean, I know you're definitely going to be like me watching Twelfth Night again because I think, well, I know you're a bit of a fan of Tamsin Gregg, aren't you? I am a big fan of Tamsin Gregg, only inadvertently because I just felt when I saw that she was in the Twelfth Night, I thought my... My lockdown life, weirdly, uh, is being defined by Tamsin Gregg, which is not something that she will ever obviously hear me say this. But she might be listening. It's not something <laughs> I ever heard I'd say, but I do spend most of my time in lockdown watching television. And two of my favourite programmes star Tamsin Gregg. One is Friday Night Dinner, which is still running, uh, now in something like its eighth series or something. It's a wonderful, hilarious um farce that has been going for 10 years now and Tams and Greg uh, starring in it along with Tom Rosenthal, Paul Ritter and Simon Bird and it's basically a Jewish family having dinner every Friday night and something goes catastrophically wrong and one of the reasons I love it is because the whole family loves it. Me, my wife and the kids sit down. It's on quite late 10 o'clock on a Friday night but we do watch it and we love it. But at the same time Tamsin, as if she can't get enough work was also one of the stars of Belgravia, which was the new sort of Downton Abbey written by Julian Fellows, set in the newly built Belgravia of the rich and famous in the mid-19th century, starring people like Philip Glenison, Alice Eve, as you would expect with Julian Fellows, an all-star cast. I absolutely loved it, but I know people who didn't, Charlotte. Yes, I must say, um, I didn't like it. And given uh, we're doing this on behalf of Country and Townhouse magazine, I do think it's interesting that whereas I did love Downton and thought it was quite rich and had quite a lot of depth and was really, I didn't, couldn't guess exactly what was going to happen next. I think this set in a town was much, A, I thought the characters were horrible, all the servants were horrible. <laughs> and I just thought it was much more predictable, very plodding, the, the plot was this dialogue was clunky I just didn't like it nearly as much as Downton and I expect you loved it because Townsend was in it um but there must have been there must have been horrible <laughs> characters in surely there were horrible characters in Downton seeking to bring down the toffs or their fellow servants or whatever there were but it wasn't it just seemed a bit more subtle perhaps because it went on for about 100 episodes longer but I don't think we're ever going to agree on Belgravia. I do think uh, I do think <laughs> I do think ITV does Sunday night drama very well. I I loved um, uh, Belgravia. I loved uh, Victoria, which uh, I think has had now three uh, series. They got uh, so I think they do that very well. It's, it's interesting. I watched a few series of Downton. I didn't watch Downton religiously all the way through, and weirdly, I had a an adverse reaction to it in the same way you have to Belgravia. I thought. I couldn't stand the sort of historical inaccuracies. And I thought, this isn't how life was like then. And it took me a while to twig. It was basically just a soap opera in costume. Uh, but I was always, I love the fact when I was the Minister for Culture, I always treasure the moment when we had the UK-Mexico year of culture and the Mexican culture minister came over 
to open an exhibition with me. And I said to him, Minister, is there anything else you want to do while you're here in the UK? And he said, yes, I want to go to Downton. <laughs> and uh, we arranged for him to visit the set of Downton Abbey. Uh, the next day, they were incredibly accommodating and nice and did their bit for UK PLC. Oh, good. Good. Well, that's that's a very lovely way to round off our disagreement about Downton and Belgravia. <laughs> um, but we can't really uh, talk about television, can we, without talking about what everyone has been waiting for forever, it seems, which is the second series of Killing Eve. What do you think so far? Well, I think it's the third series. Third series. Check. I'm so sorry. It's it is the, the third, third series. series. You're and I'm going right. to have a Charlotte. I'm going to have a Charlotte Metcalf Belgravia <laughs> reaction to the third series of Killing Eve because I loved the first series of Killing Eve. It's obviously it was absolutely sort of groundbreaking television, and Jodie Cromer in particular was an abs- was absolutely uh, outstanding in the lead role. But I felt at the end of Killing Eve, the first series, I thought I don't want any more. Uh, it's odd. It's very hard to define when a series, you feel satisfied with one series and think, actually, I don't need another. Peaky Blinders was like that for me. I thought, I enjoyed the first series. I kind of got it, enjoyed it, but I don't really want to watch the second or the third. And yet Peaky Blinders has become this complete cult. Killing Eve is now a complete cult. But at the same time, some of the Scandi dramas like The Bridge and so on, or Homeland, I can never wait for the next series. I love them. So uh, Killing Eve third series has left me cold, as indeed has the second series. But can you convince me otherwise? Um, I am not sure about it yet. I just, I absolutely adore Harriet Walter. But in this, I'm not entirely convinced. She is another Tamsin. She is. She's, She's in everything, isn't she? She's been everything. <laughs> She's in a Belgravia, Killing Eve. I know, I'm not... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a pop-up on Friday night dinner. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure about it either, but I have to thank you, Ed, for if we if we can move on now to Netflix, which I know the whole nation is putting, you know, using non non-stop during lockdown. Um, you've introduced me to a new series. I've only seen one episode, but I'm absolutely gripped. It's Fowder. Tell me a bit about that. Well, Netflix is the king of lockdown, and uh, if you had any money before. Uh, lockdown happened and put it into Netflix shares, you'd be absolutely sitting pretty at the moment because they are booming with a huge rise in subscriber numbers. But the reason they're booming is partly because they've got fantastic content and there's always something you can find that you want to watch. And I picked up a, about a week and a half ago on this series, Fowder. It's Israeli. It's made by an Israeli TV company and it basically follows an undercover unit of Israeli special forces operating in uh, occupied, the occupied territories, uh, trying to defeat, from their perspective, uh, Arab terrorists. We must be careful about how political we get in this conversation. Uh, but it's evenly balanced. I think it gives you an insight to, as well as being a sort of gripping drama, and it is an action series, uh, it gives you an insight into how the tensions in that part of the world are escalate, have escalated and how it's a, a vicious circle of violence from one side to the other. But it's extremely well made. It's made, interestingly, the same company that made the original version of Homeland. Homeland was originally an Israeli TV series that the Americans then bought and turned into their own series. So 
and it's just e- extraordinarily well made. Yes, I did actually. I did remember that it's uh, it was an Israeli company who'd made the first series of Homeland. And funny enough, it was something I was going to ask you because I thought the first series of Homeland was just by far the best. I mean, partly because of the tension between Damien Lewis and Claire Danes. But I I think it's got the same, Fauda seems to have the same quality of writing. I think it's absolutely gripping and I'm loving it. So thank you for that. And there was one other series on Netflix to, um, to do with Michael Jordan that you were recommending that I haven't seen. So tell us about that as well. So I, I no idea who's listening to this podcast, if indeed anyone is, or indeed the average uh, country and townhouse reader, their sensibility for sport, let alone American sport. But to, Michael Jordan is a very famous, obviously a world famous basketball star, widely regarded as the best basketball player ever up there in terms of sporting iconness with someone like Muhammad Ali. And The Last Dance is uh, a film about his last, um, well, the, the he played for the Chicago Bulls and they won five out of six championships, really thanks to him. And this is a series about him playing and his team playing for the sixth championship. But the drama overlying it is that everybody knows at the end of it, the coach is going to be sacked and the team is going to be rebuilt. So it follows the tensions as they go, widely regarded as, at the time, the best basketball team in the league as they go. It's a bit like watching the sort of last season of Manchester United under Alex Ferguson. And um, But the point about it is that, it's again, it's a, it's a phenomenon. It's a lockdown phenomenon because all the sports channels in the US are obviously hemorrhaging because they can't get any sport. And so ESPN, which have jointly made this with Netflix, have latched onto this series as the kind of sporting moment of the week for American audiences that are starved of sport. And uh, so they haven't released it. You can't, binge, you can't binge on this because they haven't released the whole series. They've only released two episodes this week. They'll release another two next week. And so it goes on. So it's become this kind of cultural sporting moment for the U.S., and by default, the odd Brit as well. Ah, so you recommend that. That's excellent. So I think we should move on to art now. Um, I know it's always been a great passion of yours, Ed, and um, you must be missing it. Well, I miss it a a lot. Obviously, uh, there are some amazing, um, uh, obviously, museums in the UK, and uh, there were some amazing exhibitions. The Tate had just opened its Andy Warhol exhibition. That's effectively been mothballed. Uh, in terms of you know a once in a lifetime exhibition, a once in a half a millennium exhibition at the National Gallery was Titian's Poesies, which have not been together. A series of seven paintings that haven't been together for five hundred years, and they are now sitting. I mean, it's a sort of tragedy. They're sitting alone in the National Gallery under lock and key, with nobody able to see them. So clearly, you know what museums are doing we started this conversation talking about the national theater, what museums are doing is something similar, trying to put their exhibitions online, give you virtual tours. And um, one that struck me, which is sort of slightly out of the box, not a national museum, but has got everybody excited is um, the Serpentine. So the Serpentine is a very trendy contemporary art gallery in the middle of Hyde Park. And uh, it has been around for, 40 or 50 years, I think. Princess Diana was very famously its patron. 
they have an exhibition that opened yesterday, but of course opened online uh, to celebrate and mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which of course uh, was the uh, event in 1970, which effectively is seen as the start of the environmental movement. And they have a wonderful artist called Olafur Eliasson, who everyone I'm sure will have heard of, who did the famous uh, replica sun, if you like, in the Tate Turbine Hall. And he has put up, I think it's a series of nine maps uh, where you can view the Earth in primary colours uh, and from different sort of uh, ecological perspectives. So one is viewing the Earth from the Great Barrier Reef, uh, one is from the Mariana Trench, and so on and so forth. And the idea is you stare at the dot in the middle of the painting and then you move your eyes away after staring for 10 seconds and you stare at a blank wall and the painting is reproduced on the wall. And it's all about... Have you done this? Have you tried it? It does work. It's quite fun. There's something you can do with the kids as well. It's obviously accompanied by the usual uh, verbiage or deep thoughts, depending on your point of view. Maps are human constructs. Uh, We have the power to see things in different ways, different perspectives, whether you're an animal, a plant or a glacier. Uh, All of this is... uh, in the uh, verbiage stroke deep thoughts surrounding this, but it is fun to see. And it's slightly sort of um, bleak because obviously we are at a crisis point in our planet in terms of climate change, but also this terrible virus has put things in stark relief. And so in some ways it is a sort of experience to go on the Serpentine website, see this exhibition that you should have seen in the flesh and you can't because something is going wrong with the planet. Well, I think I think hats off to the Serpentine for trying to do something unusual because I have been quite disappointed in what the galleries are doing in terms of their virtual reality tours. There's an incredibly good virtual reality tour out there at the moment of Machu Picchu. I think it's on something called youvisit.com. It's absolutely extraordinary, and you really do feel that you're there almost. And I don't. I think the galleries... I don't know what you think about this, Ed. I know that they're doing a lot of... I know you particularly like what the Tate was doing. They were doing a very good academic tour of the first um, few rooms of Tate Britain. But I found they're not... You know, there is a, there are a few virtual tours. There's one they're trying in the Louvre, but it's quite clunky. And I, I'm not sure they're catching up and using virtual reality and doing really inventive things as much as they could be. I think they should be following the Serpentine's lead a bit. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting point, and I totally, uh, I totally get where you're coming from on that. And I think, um, you know, all of this that we've... Well, we talked about sort of theatre and galleries. I mean, clearly, Netflix and TV are mediums designed for a screen, but theatre and galleries are not designed for the screen. But theatre can obviously make that transition more easily because it is, in effect, you know a drama on stage that you can watch on a screen. Very, very difficult for galleries to do that because, in effect, what they're asking you to do is look at a static object, particularly a two-dimensional object like a painting. But I do think that they could be more imaginative. I think that the Serpentine, for example, you know, digital art and what is digital art, can you um, construct artistic uh, objects effectively for the viewer who's going to view them in a screen as opposed to the viewer who's going to view them in the gallery is an interesting uh, question. And we'll see whether people can... I mean, I like the fact, for example, that there's a wonderful charity that I love called Art UK, which has managed to 
photograph every single oil painting in a public collection. And what they do is they allow you to curate your own exhibition. And they also categorize their paintings in very crude ways. So you want paintings with dogs? Art UK has paintings with dogs. So you can go online, call up paintings with dogs, curate your own paintings with dogs exhibition. So it's a great way of engaging uh, with with art in a way that, you know, it's hard to know whether a virtual tour could ever do it. No, but I certainly for our listeners anyway, we'll keep our, if anyone is listening out there, we will be keeping our eyes and ears open for any more interesting ways of showing you art online in the coming weeks. And let's move on to something that's a lot easier to experience at home now, which is music. I know you've been listening to quite a lot, Ed. What have you been listening to? Well, I was going to recommend the Berlin uh, Philharmonic, which really <laughs> does sound like hard work. But, I mean, it's it's again worth remembering that a lot of these organisations, cultural organisations that we talk about, uh, do have an online presence already. Um, the Berlin Philharmonic has the digitalconcerthall.com, uh, which has been up for a few years. But, of course, now the digitalconcerthall.com is free of charge, as is a lot of these uh, sites which were behind paywalls, perhaps understandably, uh, have been um, uh, made available for free because uh, people understand that you know people are stuck at home, and also to be slightly crude about it, it's quite a good way of um, uh, gaining new audiences because people will be thinking, "What on earth are we going to do with ourselves?" I know, let's go and look at the Berlin Phil. But anyway, you can choose your composer, you can choose your conductor, and you can watch the Berlin film play any number of symphonies. That you want. Shall we move very quickly on to books then and just finish off, round off with, with a little bit about books. What have you been reading? I've been re- reading a book by somebody called Tristan Gooley. And Tristan Gooley is not a pseudonym. It's actually a real person. And he's written this book called The Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs. But it's from 2014. I'm not reading anything up to date of the minute. Because I'm in Oxfordshire in the countryside, it's a beautifully written book about how to just basically, when you're going for a walk, how to read the landscape. So uh, that's the book on my bedside at the moment. And is there any, um, I was listening to Margaret Atwood on the Today programme saying that for the first time in her life, she was tackling the brothers Karamazov. Is there any great big tome that you've always wanted to read that you're going to get your teeth into? I tackled the brothers Karamazov many years ago, and I can tell Margaret Atwood that she's tackling one of the all-time great books. But no, I'm not planning to tackle the great novel. In fact, (laughs) there was a very good article, I think, by the editor of the Times Literary Supplement saying, put your your Proust aside and read all 24 novels by Lee Child, the great thriller writer, the Jack Reacher thriller writer. I've read every single one. I've now got onto the Lee Child mailing list where I get an advanced copy of each novel. Uh, He is absolutely marvellous. And I don't think one should, um, although I referred to my friend's annoying tweet about self-improvement earlier in this podcast, I think one should just, you know, we've got to get through lockdown. So enjoy yourself. Don't make it a penance. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And if you've enjoyed listening to us, please join Ed and me again next Monday. Now, if you want more ideas, if this podcast wasn't enough for you, please visit countryandtownhouse.co.uk 
where you can sign up to the daily good newsletter, which is fantastic because it brings you positive stories from across the world. It will help keep your spirits high in these uncertain times. It's also a fantastic website because it's a fantastic magazine, but it's obviously digital at the moment. So countryandtownhouse.co.uk, start your morning with a strong espresso and countryandtownhouse.co.uk.